Hello and welcome to the Shock Your Potential podcast. I am your host, Michael Sherlock. Each one of us holds great potential, and tapping into that potential is my passion and my mission. Shock Your Potential is a global leadership training company dedicated to creating positive, productive, and profitable workplaces. We develop, nurture, train, and guide leaders at all levels and at all points in their career. Through this podcast, I get to interview amazing leaders who are shocking their own potential and the potential of those around them. Learn more about us today at shockyourpotential.com and shockyourpotentialpodcast.com. And don't forget to check out my two best-selling books, Tell Me More, How to Ask the Right Questions and Get the Most Out of Your Employees, and Sales Mixology, Why the Most Potent Sales and Customer Experiences Follow a Recipe for Success. Join us now as we meet another great guest. And don't forget, subscribe, rate, and like us today. Thank you for joining us again on another episode of Shock Your Potential. And our guest today has a shocking, not only background, but just a shockingly wonderful view of life and, and how he tackles it. I cannot wait to hear more of his story. But I, I want to first, you know, just preface this, that if you are, if you've ever said, I want to run a marathon, and you thought that that was daunting. Wait until you hear Mark's story about uh, running not only one marathon, but four marathons and, uh, and really overcoming some amazing challenges that I think he only saw as you know, new op- opportunities. But Mark talks about resilience and he teaches resilience. And I cannot wait to ask him a lot of questions. So joining me today, and thank you so much, from New Brunswick is Mark Black. Mark, thank you so much for being a part of our podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about your story because I I have a feeling, it's just my guess here, that your personal journey has a lot to do with your professional journey and what you help people with in terms of resilience. Yeah, bingo. Absolutely. So um, I will go back to the very beginning, but don't don't, don't worry. It's not going to take a long time to get to where we are today. I just, you need to have the context. So um, I was born with a congenital heart defect, which uh, basically means that my heart uh, had abnormalities, uh, structural abnormalities from from day one. And so I was uh, airlifted from the hospital I was born into a children's hospital three hours away and had open heart surgery at a day old. And after that, and I like I'm a parent now and my parents were 23 years old. I was their firstborn child. Uh, I can't even fathom what that was like for them. Of course, I have no memory of it, which is probably a blessing, but, but they went through <laughs> hell for about two years. Um, and, and the doctors were able to fix the structural problems enough to keep me uh, going. And I had another surgery when I was a year old. And then uh, a fairly, what I, what I thought was a very normal childhood in retrospect, um, a modified normal childhood uh, for most of my life, I was able to, to be quite active and uh, got through school uh, on schedule, all things that that were not uh, guaranteed when I was uh, an infant because they thought I'd miss a lot of time. And then when I was 24, um, over the course of about six months, my condition went from quite stable to perilous pretty quickly. And I was a, a, a young man uh, going to university full-time, had a part-time job and a 
girlfriend and kind of was mapping out the next 15, 20 years of my life. And maybe, maybe it was naivety, maybe it was being a man. I'm not sure what it was, but I ignored uh, plenty of signs and symptoms for a long time that I should have been paying attention to. And so by the time it got mm-hmm. to the point where I could no longer ignore them, uh, things were pretty dire. Uh, my heart slowly went into what's called congestive heart failure, which just means it's not functioning properly. It's not circulating blood properly. And the symptoms of that were that I began to get really short of breath very easily. Uh, I was losing a lot of weight and didn't know why. And, and so I was admitted to hospital, mm-hmm. was there for a month. And finally, a doctor says, um, look, we've done all the testing. The results have come back. And you need a heart and two new lungs. And you need them like now. And wow. Yeah, in the span of, you know, one conversation, my entire future evaporated and my whole life changed. Well, that, I mean, the news in and of itself is shocking, but just to be delivered that in one day, it's not like, well, we've got to talk about it. We're going to run some tests. It's boom, you need this and you need this now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, from from birth, we've always been told that someday you may need a new heart. It was one of those like off in the future things. And then, as I said, this deterioration happened very quickly. And then and then the news was kind of like, we need to get you on the transplant list as soon as possible. Uh, if we can even get you on the transplant list, because um, sadly, the way that organ donation works is that there aren't enough donors for everybody who needs one. So if you're listening to this right now, please have that conversation with your family. And yes. because of that shortage, doctors are placed in this, and, and healthcare professionals in general, their teams, are placed in this precarious position of trying to balance um, the need versus the supply. And so they actually put off putting people on the transplant list who, who could get one today because they're not sick enough. And yet if you mm-hmm. get to a certain point where uh, your, your health is too bad, then you're not strong enough to survive the surgery. And so you become too sick. And so you have yeah. to kind of be in this happy medium um, where you're just right. The Goldilocks, the Goldilocks syndrome where you have to be just right. And, I, my doctor was concerned I was too far gone, but he said, I'll put you on the list uh, if I can. And I was lucky wow. that a team uh, was willing to kind of roll the dice because, of course, you know, hospitals and, and uh, transplant programs are funded partially based on success rates. And so they don't necessarily want to take a flyer on somebody because it's not good for their stats. I and, had no idea. Yeah, wow. I mean, they, the, 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 the teams that, I mean, I don't want to say the teams that do better get more money necessarily, but certainly success rates are part of the overall picture that they want to consider. And the bigger factor, frankly, is that if they only have, you know, X number of organs to, to transplant into people, they want to use them as best as they can. And so they don't want to put it into somebody who's probably not going to survive for six months or a year or more. So uh, we were not given a lot of hope, frankly, but I, but I got lucky and um, I had to move um, because uh, lungs in particular are incredibly fragile. All organs are obviously when they've been removed from the body, but the lungs at that time had a survival span or a, a lifespan of about uh, 12 hours between the time they were extracted and then placed into the new person. Mm-hmm. And so there's no time for like catching a commercial flight or any of that stuff, right? You have to be kind of ready to go at a moment's notice. Mm-hmm. So I had to move the closest transplant center was a thousand miles away from where we live. So I moved um, to be on site and I spent, um, almost a year, uh, in Toronto, a thousand miles from, from home with a beeper, uh, waiting, waiting for a call. Yeah. 
Oh my God. So every day you had this anticipation, today could be the day or oh, today wasn't the day. That is a long year of tension, which can't help your overall situation. No, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, they, they told us uh, the transplant team required that you have a support person with you. And mm -hmm. again, I was a 24-year-old man and I thought I'm completely independent. I don't need somebody like this is ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, so my dad was the one who moved with me to Toronto and mom and dad switched places a couple of times during that, that wait. Uh, but I really thought, oh, this, you know, this is kind of ridiculous. I'm totally capable of doing this. And within a month, I realized why that support person was there, not just to, mm -hmm. for many people, it's the physical support because they're physically so deteriorated that just getting to appointments and things is challenging. I was fortunate to, to be healthy enough to do that, but it's the keep, just keeping occupied and staying in the right frame of mind and not getting too discouraged and all of those things. Um, it was critical to have, to have a support system to keep you uh, going and to, and to get you through that time. I was hospitalized for the last six months of that year long wait as well, because my, my condition got to the point where it was too dangerous for me to be out and about. And so mm -hmm. I've lived uh, in the hospital where the surgery happened for six months before, before I finally got the calls. Jeez. Yeah. Th there's some resilience you need to have through that or that you had to build along the or way. Or they have to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So what happened when you got the news? So it was an it was a, a regular night like every other night, and I'd gone to bed as you say. I'd gone to bed every night hoping that you know tomorrow will be the day. And it was like ten o'clock. I'm watching TV in my hospital room, and uh, my nurse Gail, who I come to know quite well, came to the door and said, "There's a call for you at the nurse station." And there's a phone beside my bed, right? Like I don't get calls at the nurse's station. Something's going on. And I walk in the hall and into the office and there's four or five nurses gathered around the phone and I pick it up and a stranger on the other end of the line says, Mr. Black, I think we have a set of heart and lungs for you. And my parents would tell you it's very ironic. It was the only time in my life where I was completely speechless. That's never happened before. Um, I didn't <laughs> I know what to say. I just got goosebumps as you were telling it. So yeah, I think you, you're, it's coming through. Yeah, I think I managed to thank you to that poor woman. Um, and I went back to my, my room. I called. Mom was with me in Toronto at that point, so I called Mom to come to the hospital. Called everybody at home to say, we got the call. You know, we'll give you an update when we know what's happening because it was about an eight-hour process from the time the donor is identified as compatible to the time they – oftentimes it's the surgical team that will do the transplant that retrieves the organ. So they get on a plane, they go, they get the organ, they bring it back, and then they do a surgery. So it can take some time. So I was operated. Uh, they came to get me for surgery at 5 a.m. the next morning, so about seven hours later. And um, I, I remember it vividly. I mean, I, I, they, I was on the stretcher in my room. They were going to wheel me to the OR. And there was this moment. And my mom's standing beside me, and she's looking at me, and I'm looking at her. And we both, without speaking it, realize this is the last thing we may ever say to each other. Like, what do you say? Um, and I said, Mom, I'm going to see you soon. And that's the last thing I remember for about five days. Oh, I bet. Yeah, I was in surgery for eight, seven or eight hours. And then in the intensive care unit where the, where the morphine was very good for about five <laughs> days. So I don't have, a, don't have a whole lot of recall except some strange hallucinations. For about the I don't remember much, but I know I didn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
Wow. So, you know, I, gosh, there's just so many questions just about your story. It's, you gave me chills three times, which is, um, you know, it's, I can think that anybody listening is thinking, this is amazing. This is, a, it's, it's a miracle. It's a blessing. It's also a tragedy on the other side, a loss of life. But all those things are kind of our circle of life and how we come together. How, how did you, you know, kind of restart then, you know, when, when you, as you're healing and your body is, you know, it, is coming to a new kind of normal, you know, what, what was going through your head? How did you, how did you make it through that time and have all those emotions, especially mm. after a year of all of that waiting anticipation? It's a great question because you, you bring up something that I had not given enough weight to. I had been warned, uh, but, but just didn't take it in, didn't really understand. Uh, I knew from talking to other patients and, and just seeing photos and videos and things that the physical comeback, rehabilitation, whatever we want to call that, was going to be intense. And it was. Um, because you go from nothing. Like when I do, when I do keynotes, I often show um, people the picture of me five days after the surgery and I weigh 80 pounds and I'm skin and bones and um, there's tubes and the whole nine yards. And then uh, so to get from there to, to running a marathon in, in three years was, was a hard physical journey, but the emotional mental journey was much harder. Uh, and I had not, I had not accounted for that at all. I mean, uh, initially just like joy and elation and like a, a high, like I've probably never experienced before or, or since, um, you know, colors are brighter and smells are strong. Like it's, it's every, all of the cliches are true about the second chance at life. But the flip side of that was very, very aware. I mean, from the moment we got the call, the first thing moment I did was pray for that family somewhere that we don't know, who's at our kind of highest moment is at their lowest moment. And uh, the fact that, that I am alive because someone else is not is, is certainly was never lost on me. And so there's all of that emotional mm -hmm. processing, like why did this happen? And why me and not them and all, you know, all of that stuff. Um, and then there's ramifications from the drugs that you take. So you go through this kind of, you're really basically, you're processing through PTSD. That's, that's not really okay. what they called it, but that's what it was. And you're on high doses of steroids, which if anybody's been on those for, for other issues, you know that they take you on this kind of roller coaster. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, it took a, it, I'd say I was a year before I felt emotionally like myself again. And I was not, I was not prepared for that. So that was, that was really, really hard. Um, one of the strange things, again, that I had not thought of, but it makes sense in retrospect, is something that um, Olympians go through as well. And, and I'm sure many of the other people in different transitions. Our, my entire focus, our whole family's focus for a year was get this transplant. And so you're so focused on that and you don't know if it's going to happen or not that you, you don't plan past tomorrow kind of. Yeah. And then it happens and you're kind of like, oh crap, now what? Like, <laughs> now what do Got I do? That. Check that box. Yeah, like, check. Now, what's the next? So I found, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I found myself at like three, four months out kind of going, okay, like everything is going well. Blessing. Yeah. I'm super fortunate because there were all kinds of side effects and problems that could have happened that didn't. Um, and yet I feel totally lost. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how to use my time. I don't know what I want to, you know, what I'm going to spend my time doing. Pre-transplant, I was planning to be a teacher. Post-transplant, 
they said, look, you're on a bunch of immunosuppressant drugs. You catch infections like a drop of a hat. There yeah. are really two places we'd like you to avoid at all costs. And that schools? would be hospitals and, hosp and schools. <laughs> okay, great. I have to come to the hospital. So I guess schools is the one I have a choice about. So now what? And, and yeah, I mean, I floundered in the, in the career department for three years before I stumbled into speaking completely by accident. So, oh. so at what point did you say, I'm going to start running? Did you say I'm going to tra train for a marathon or did you say I'm just going to start running because it's got to be a way to, for me to clear my head or both? Um, I'm probably a little of both, but I, yeah, I, I'm just one of those people that uh, I know that I should exercise just for the sake of it being good for me, but I kind of need something to work towards to get motivated to do it. So I had heard about these things called transplant games, which is basically like the Olympics for people who have had transplants. People from all over the world come together and compete for four or five days in different events. And uh, we joke, it's the only athletic competition in the world where if you don't test positive for steroids, you're not allowed to compete. Um, I love that. Now that's hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. Um, and so I thought, okay, I want to like, they had, they had a 5k, they called it the mini marathon, the 5k. And I said, I wonder if I can get ready for that. It was 10 months from my surgery date. You know, I wasn't supposed to be allowed to compete until a year, but I knew my cardiologist uh, was the kind of person who would sign that waiver if, if I was ready. And so that was kind of the first step. And, and then I thought, well, if I could run a marathon, then, and it was really just for me, it was like, if I could do that, then I know that I can physically, I can do whatever I want to do. And mm. so that, you know, that began the process, I ran a five and then a 10 K and I did a, I did a half marathon to celebrate my 26th birthday. And then, wow. uh, and then a marathon a year later. Ah, oh, that's phenomenal. And then you decided you're just crazy enough. You had to do three more. So the funny <laughs> thing about marathons is anybody that runs has run one will tell you, it's funny. I just went and saw some of my friends do an Ironman. Uh, and I watched them. I didn't, I, I, that will not happen for me because I'm not a runner or I'm not a swimmer, but, mm. um, it's funny, like I watched them at the finish line and this was all during COVID. So they had planned to do this big event. They'd signed up, they were gonna travel the whole nine. It got canceled, obviously. And they said, we're doing it anyway. And they organized something for like the six of them that had trained together and it was, it was amazing. But as soon as they finished, they're like, when's the next one? It's that thing, it's like there's this high of, now two days later when you're sore, you may reconsider, but there's that high. And that's of like, why they have you sign do. up before you're done. Like, that's hey, percent enrollment rate and you're like i'll sign right there and two days later you're like what the? what was i thinking yeah <laughs> so i was doing i was on a track to do um five before my 30th birthday and then we had our second child when i was 29 and i haven't run another one since so something about <laughs> training long hours and long distances with my wife holding a baby and a three-year-old on the floor didn't seem fair oh. so Yes, I haven't, I haven't returned to long distance running yet, but someday. I have completed one marathon. I always say that I didn't run it because I did not run the entire thing. And I was not a great runner. I'm actually a much better runner now than I was then. But my goal was to complete it in six hours. And I completed it in six hours, one minute and 10 seconds. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, I'm such a, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm failed. <laughs> No way. You know, uh, we, I, I was so grateful to do, uh, I trained with the running room and they had a, a program to follow, which was great, but they also had a group that you could just build in and built in that you could run with. 
I yes. never would have been able to do it without that because it, it gets you through the, the boredom, first of all, of running for that long. Yes. Um, but it also set us up for success. And one of the first things they told us was you need to have three goals when you run this thing. Goal number one is finish. Yes. And, and to make sure, it's because exactly what you say, too many people have a goal time and they miss it and then they feel yes. like they failed. And it's like, you ran a marathon less than whatever the number is, 3% of the world has ever done that. Like be super <laughs> proud of the fact that you did that, not crap on yourself because you missed it by two minutes, right? Exactly. Um, so yeah, I was super ha happy that they gave us that, that tip because I, in four marathons, I only made my goal time once, so. Well, and it is funny because uh, you're right. Um, I've actually ran it or, you know, did it with several family members and they were all much faster. They were all done, showered, had lunch, everything, you know, waiting for me at the end. But I remember I stuck $40 in my sports bra before I left. And somebody's like, what are you doing? I go, just in case I need a taxi. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, before, uh, it was before Lyft and all that. And I remember when I got to the halfway mark and I thought, well, I can't, you know, I can't turn around now. I just got to keep going. Got to get <laughs> back. It was right about the, that halfway mark when this man um, came out of nowhere because I was completely alone for a long period of time because I was in like the last running group before the walkers started. And this man runs by me at mile 13, pushing a stroller with like a five and a four-year-old. And he just goes by me and I'm like, bye. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not going to do another one of these. <laughs> oh, God. So, you know, you, I know you're a speaker, but you're also a coach, and which is why I want to have this coaching series. I, I was just telling somebody that I interviewed yesterday, I was laughing because, you know, when coaching kind of became a thing, you know, a couple decades ago, I remember some friends of mine at the time, they're like, I'm a certified coach. And I was thinking, I would never have you be my coach. <laughs> like, you know, some of them like, <laughs> but you, you have so much, um, so much background in resilience and so much of a focus of saying, you know, here's how to, you know, really look at your life and, and find ways to be resilient. When you work with your clients, you know, what are the things that they're facing? You know, just a couple things that you see as common denominators and why do they come to you for that? And how do you help them to, to overcome them or to, you know, look at them in a different way? Yeah. So first of all, let me, let me preface all of this by saying I'm not a certified coach and I, and my clients all know that well, too. Coach, uh, so that's, coach. so that's not. Yeah, if no, you but, coach, but I, I think you're certified in my own mind. <laughs> well, yeah. and, I, and I say that only because, to your point, I think, I, you know, I'd, for example, I'd much rather have a business mentor who's run three businesses than one who's got an MBA. Now, if you have an yes. MBA too, awesome. Like no crap on, on formal education at all. But to me, I want somebody that's walked the walk. And so most of the time, my coaching clients come to me because they either know me they've seen a bunch of my social media stuff and feel like they know me or they've seen me speak somewhere and I've established some level of credibility with them by, by, you know, when you share kind of the most vulnerable parts of yourself, as I do on stage, I'm just an open book. It's here's who I am. Um, you'll like it or you won't. And that's fine. Uh, they, there's a level of trust there. Right. And so that just helps form that connection. And, and typically people will connect their struggle or challenge or obstacle or adversity with mine, um, which is great, which is the whole point. 
but it's, 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 it can be funny sometimes because I've also done a lot of speaking in schools and I've had kids come up and be like, I know exactly what you went through because I broke my arm and it was so hard because, you know, it's like, okay, whatever. Like if that's your perspective, then that's cool. Um, (laughs) But interestingly, that's one of the things that I help people with most often is, is perception or perspective. So how do we frame what we're going through and look we all need that myself included i think you know every any coach who doesn't have a coach is is illegitimate um because we can't see the forest for their trees in our own situation right i mean we all are looking through a unique lens and that lens leaves you blind to other things that's just the way life is and so if you don't have now i mean whether you have a, a formal coach or you just have a great accountability partner or you have a really good friend who will tell you the absolute truth, not just what you want to hear, whatever works. But we all need that objective third-party opinion to go, wait a minute, you're not looking at this clearly. Um, or you're only seeing this side of a two-sided coin. Uh, I, th- I believe that's one of the biggest advantages of coaching and one of the greatest services that I give people. The number of times that people have ahas when I'm in a coaching session with them. And I think I didn't say anything mind-boggling there. Like there was no brilliance to what I just said. I just helped you to see something that was right in front of your face that you weren't noticing um and the other big piece again comes back to being a human being is accountability like you are not not doing what you know you need to do because you don't know better like it's 2020 information is at your fingertips at all times so if you're overweight it's not because you don't know the right things to eat it's because you can't get yourself to eat what you know you're supposed to eat and that's not a, a slight on you we're all battling that that battle um but like it's not rocket science to say you shouldn't smoke you need to exercise you need to eat well like everybody knows what to do the question Mm -hmm. is how can i get myself to do it and most everybody i've ever met is far more accountable to another person than they are to themselves it's why the training group for the marathon worked right the training group for the marathon worked for me and for thousands and thousands of people it's why the running room is so successful because I will show up to our Sunday morning long run when I know that other people are there waiting for me to show up right. way more often than making sure that I answer to myself because I put something in my calendar that said I'm going to run tomorrow. It's a lot easier to blow myself off than it is to blow up a whole group of people, right? And so to me, that's the biggest value in coaching is I've got this coaching meeting on Friday at three and I said I was going to do these four things and it's Wednesday at three and I haven't done any of them yet. I guess I better get cracking. Yeah. Whereas if that's, you know, a list of to do's on my calendar and there's no real consequence to not doing it, then I probably put it off another week. Yeah, just move it to another day. <laughs> it's so true. I, um, I just, uh, I just worked for 16 weeks with a fitness coach and uh, it was all virtual before even all the COVID stuff happened. Cause she's across the country and um, it was amazing because I, I realized I needed to lose weight. I, I, knew that, I knew where the scale was going, but I hadn't seen myself. And then I taped a whole bunch of video content in January. And I was watching the video. And I'm like, oh, my God, when did I get fat? <laughs> like, what happened? <laughs> when did that happen? My husband's like. <laughs> Smart husband, yeah. I don't, exactly. I don't know what you're talking I don't know. about. You look beautiful to me. And uh, so every day I'd had to take a picture of the scale. I had to take a picture of what I was eating. I had to take a picture of myself when I was sweaty after a workout. And, and you know, those were just parts of, of the process. And 
And I know from what I do and I know from what you do, you're absolutely right that I knew what I needed to do. I knew what I wanted, I should be doing. I just didn't want to do it bad enough until I had somebody who's like, hey, you know, I told you to, to not do this and I see that you did it three times or I told you to do this and I say, see, you didn't do it. And that, that accountability makes it so much more challenging. And there were times when I would say to her, this is so hard. And she'd say, this is what hard feels like. And the first day that I moved the scale to, to what I felt was a significant number, I took a picture of myself because I felt incredible. And I said, this is what hard looks like. And it was such a great moment for me to see, here's the correlation for knowing what I need to do, having somebody to hold me accountable, doing it. And, you know, in the end, I lost 19 pounds. So I know. And I was like, wow. And I remember somebody said, yeah, but, you know, that's a lot of money to spend to lose 19 pounds. And I said, wow, I think it was worth a whole lot more than I paid. What's your well-being worth? What's your energy level worth? What's your, and, 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 uh, you know, so I talk to my clients about that as well, right? They'll talk about, about fees and, you know, it's not, it's not anybody's fault. People have grown up with a by the hour kind of mentality. And so if you start to look at coaching that way, it makes no sense. It seems crazy, but mm -hmm. you have to look at it in terms of I'm paying for a result, right? And so if you're paying for a result, what's that result worth? Mm -hmm. And yeah, what's your health worth? Like, yeah, the number on the scale is great, but that's just, that's just a representation of a whole lot of other things, right? Um, yeah, it's, yeah. That's a really great point. I, I wanna emphasize that because you're paying not for the hour, you're paying for the result. What is the result worth? What is the result worth to you? 100%, I've worked with coaches and consultants in my business, some of whom added more value to my business and more value to the bottom line of my business in an hour than mm -hmm. others did in three months. Like it's not about the, yes, there's some correlation there, mm -hmm. but it's really about the insight and, and about tweaking the right things. And if you can save me $1,000 or six months or whatever, because you're teaching me something I didn't know before, that's worth so much. And yeah, we've just got, as a society, we have to get out of that transactional mentality of like mm -hmm. so many dollars per hour and think about, well, what's this thing really, worth to me like we do it in consumer things all the time right you don't go to the yeah. to the furniture store and buy the couch based on how much the leather costs and how much the foam <laughs> the cushions cost and you, you know it's like do i like or it, how many it fit with my it? <laughs> yeah right exactly yeah, that's right how many people have beautiful couches and living rooms that they never sit in uh, so yeah it, it's really about the value exchange and can you create a result mm -hmm. for me that's that's worth money and if you can then people will spend significant dollars and, and, and it's a good investment. Absolutely. Well, when you look back on your life, your personal life, which is so intertwined with what you do now professionally, and you look back at kind of this evolution, you know, what's, what's a, maybe it's, you don't have to narrow it down to one, but one of the most important lessons that you learned along the way that helped you to shock your potential, um, take you to the next level. It's going to be super simple, but I hope profound for people if they really think about it. Um, I have this bracelet that I wear every day. Someday it will be a tattoo when I have the guts to do that. Um, <laughs> that says live today. And, and what that means is I sat in a hospital room for six months on a transplant list for a year with death literally at the front door. 
And it just reminded me and made me understand just how fragile life is. And you know, I'm here uh, coming up on 18 years after the transplant, which is, it's all been a wonderful gift. But I was told from the beginning, the five-year survival rate of a heart-lung transplant is 50%. So half people make it to five years. Uh, I forget like 35% or something in 10 years and it, it dwindles after that, obviously. I'm not supposed to be here. And, and I have no idea if I've got another six months or another six years, but it's very unlikely that at 42, I see 50. And I say that not in any sort of um, negative um, or pessimistic way. I, I came to terms with that a long time ago. But it's, it's constantly on my mind, not in a worrying way, but just in a realistic way, that life is short. And even if you get to be 100, it still goes by fast. And so it's about, you know, using our time to things that matter to us, the things, to things that count. It's not about, and I say this in presentations all the time, live every day like it's your last day. Like, please don't do that. I don't want to be responsible for people speeding on the highway. Um, <laughs> or jumping out of airplanes. Or jumping out of planes. Yeah. And as anybody that's tried that strategy knows, you have the same problem I had after the transplant. Now what? Like, so you did it. Exactly. Great. Now what do you do? Um, it's a, just about appreciating the gift that is being alive and saying, how can I use that opportunity to make it count, to be able to, I'm always about building my obituary rather than my resume, right? So what do I want people to be able to say about me when they're standing up in front of those people and I'm laying in a box? What do I want people to be able to, be able to say? They're not gonna read my bio. They're gonna talk about how I live my life. And so I'm always trying, failing lots, but always trying to live each day in a way that I can look back and be proud of it. I, I just wrote that down as you said that. I want to spend more time building my obituary than my resume. That's very, that's very poignant. I like that a lot. Well, I know it's, it's, it's tough, right? Cause we, we're in a, we're in a social media world and, and our social media world is all about comparison and it's all about showing everybody your highlights um, <laughs> and, and none of your flaws. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's so totally easy. What are you talking about? Yeah. I'm only about my, I have no flaws. What are you talking about? <laughs> and so it's so easy to get down on ourselves because we compare our 90% to everybody else's 10% and can't figure out why we don't match up. Uh, mm. And so if you, I think focusing on the obituary instead of the resume helps you to kind of, again, reframe and go, wait a minute, what do I really care about here? Like what really matters? Um, mm. And, and, and breaking it down into small enough steps so that you're, you're just, you have a long-term plan, but then you execute it one day at a time. I love it. I love it. Well, we're almost out of time. And I know that we're going to have all of your com uh, complete uh, info on our show notes, but in case anybody can't wait and they want to find you right now, what's the best way for them to track you down? Um, markblack.ca because I'm Canadian. So it's not, and somebody somewhere has Mark, well, somebody named Mark Black, I hope, has markblack.com and I can't get it. Um, but anyway, mm -hmm. so it's markblack.ca. There you'll find all the social media handles so you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, wherever you, wherever you, LinkedIn, wherever you hang out. I can purchase michaelsherlock.com for like $14,000. And there I'm like, go. it's not that important. Not However, that important. when people search me, they, the most other search, Michael Sherlock is also an author. Um, but he is like the head of the Atheist Alliance in the world, in Australia. 
and he just got removed from his position for calling a reporter a very unladylike term as well as having mm. a rant. And I'm like, that's not me. That's yeah. not, not, not my Michael Atheist. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, Mark, this has been such a pleasure. Before we go, do you have any last words of wisdom or pearls of advice to share with my listeners and viewers? Oh, my gosh. Um, no, I, I think, again, if I could leave you with two ideas. Live today is is obviously a major one for me, and the other part is is progress um, over perfection, process over results. Like it's about daily getting a tiny bit better, right? One percent better every day. What are, what running a marathon? What what I love about running marathons is that it's a great analogy for how life works, right? And and you know this from having done it people would say to me all the time, I could never run a marathon. And I always say, no, you just don't want to, which is fine. Like not everybody needs to want to, but it's not about athletic ability. It's not about skill. It's, it's about putting in some time to train. And then it's about pure will and perseverance. That's all. It's one foot in front of the other until you get there. That's all it is. And you either want it bad enough or you don't. And Mm -hmm. I think life is a lot like that too. We all come from different backgrounds. We all have different levels of advantage and disadvantage but at some point you have to go, I got to work with what I've got and do the best I can one day at a time. And I'm either going to do that or I'm not. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Mark, thank you so much for sharing your story as well as your wisdom. I appreciate it. I know my listeners well as well. And I'm very, I'm looking forward to staying connected for the long term. Well, thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to, to meet you virtually. Maybe someday we'll do it face to face, but thanks for having Amen. me on the show. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Shock Your Potential. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and like our podcast. And for more information, find us at shockyourpotential.com and shockyourpotentialpodcast.com.